Hi, welcome to the UMMC Bible Study Podcast, a podcast produced with students at UMMC. My name is Tim Chen, and I'm a former graduate of the UMC Medical School. Currently, I'm a family physician practicing in Mississippi. The goal of our podcast is to help our students and their families grow closer with the Lord and stronger in their faith and walk with God. With the rigors of school, it can be difficult to spend time with the Lord as well as fellowship with other believers. We hope that this podcast uplifts you during this challenging time and encourages you in your journey with God. Today, I'm joined again by Dr. Paul Redman. Paul is a pediatric ER physician in Texas. Welcome back, Paul. It's been a while. How's everything going in Texas? Thanks for having me back, Tim. I appreciate the invite. Well, I'm glad you're on with me today. Today, we are getting into part two of our podcast series concerning God's Ark. Before we start, I do want to spend a little time recapping how we got here. Prior to this podcast, we had been seeing such a wonderful picture concerning the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that the tree of life symbolizes a life dependent on God, and the principle of this tree extends all the way through the entire Bible. We saw ones like Enosh and Enoch, ones that called on the Lord and ones that walked with God. Now we are talking about Noah. Noah inherited all the practices of his forefathers. He was righteous. He walked with God. He even found grace in the eyes of the Lord. While Noah's godly walk was one that we should all learn from, it wasn't just for his own spirituality. In fact, his godly living afforded God a chance to open his heart and show Noah what his main work was in Noah's time. What was also shown is Noah's willingness to not only see the vision, but also cooperate with God, and together, Noah and God were able to do one of the most amazing monumental work ever. You could say it literally changed the course of human history. Now, you could look at that and just appreciate it as a story, but I think it's also a principle, just like all the other things we've seen from Genesis. God has a monumental work today. God has a central work, an ark, where all the other work ties into. And according to our podcast last week, that ark is the church. If you haven't heard it yet, I encourage you to listen to it prior to this one so you can get the full picture. Paul, do you want to add anything before we start concerning the church as God's main work today? I think any seeking Christian uh, has to realize that based on their own experience and their walk with Christ, they've come to recognize or realize that God is active in their lives. I remember when I went to Europe, saw a bunch of frescoes and paintings, and they all made God look like he was just quietly sitting in the heavens on a throne, old, and like he was just sitting there waiting, doing nothing. But I think our experience indicates that God is active, and you read the Bible and you see that he's been an active God throughout all of human history. The entire Old Testament was him aggressively pursuing a people, Uh, for himself in order to prepare or make way for uh, his own coming, the coming of Jesus. Uh, And then you read the New Testament, and the whole New Testament shows that God is active and God is doing something on the earth. It didn't cease. It didn't stop after his death and resurrection. But 
you know, the majority of the New Testament actually comes after the four Gospels and shows us as Christians kind of what kind of God we have operating in our lives. And, and, and there's one verse that I really have always liked. That verse is Revelation 4.11, which says that, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for you have created all things, and because of your will they were and were created. And so this verse indicates that God has a will, that he has an intention of something he wants or, or wants to do. And I'm so glad y'all were in Ephesians last week because Ephesians, the whole book, focuses a lot on God's will. And in particular, focuses on the church of God as his will. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, there's several verses in there that are remarkable. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul talks about the mystery of God's will. He calls God's will a mystery, which throughout the ages had been hidden. It hadn't been made known to the godly people of old. But if you look in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul says that actually that mystery was made known to him. And that mystery is made known now through the church. In verse 10, Paul says that it's made known through the church. And this really correlates well with the verses that you guys were in last week in Ephesians 5, where Paul harkens back all the way to the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve and points out that that itself is a mystery and it also relates to Christ and the church. And so I feel like it's important for us to realize that, you know, God didn't stop working, didn't stop being active and intentional in what he was doing after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. You know, the whole New Testament, the majority of it is after the Gospels. It's after the life, living, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, what does the rest of the New Testament tell us? What does it show us? Well, it shows us what God is after, that it didn't just stop with the cross, that God is not uh, sitting up in the heavens just waiting, an old gray-haired man just sitting there biding his time, but he's actually active, and he's moving, and he's doing something uh, with an intention. And so it's all, you know it's, it's incumbent on us to see what that is, to, to ask the Lord and to inquire of him and to get into his word to find out, Lord, what are you doing today? What is your activity today? So what is God doing today? Well, he's saving people. He's saving sinners. He's uh, using his people to preach the gospel to all the inhabited earth. But even more, he is after his church. Even as Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 25, that because Christ loved the church, he gave himself up on the cross for her. We can see just from even these few short passages that the Lord's will, God's intention, and his purpose today fully centers around his people, the church. Whoa, Paul is coming in hot. That's a great overview. And what you're showing us in those verses is, again, that the church isn't an afterthought in the scriptures. The church was on God's heart from the beginning, and everything he does today has a church in view. 
Paul, I think this is actually a good time to define what the church is. You know, in today's COVID age, I'm always talking to my patients about the vaccine. And I realize it's hard to describe the Pfizer vaccine if people don't know what mRNA is. I would even say that this rumor of it altering your DNA is because people don't know what mRNA does. So it's important to define terms, otherwise confusion and misinformation can creep in. So before we go any further, can you show us how the Bible defines the church? Yeah, I'm really glad you put this question because a lot of times I say the word church, but I don't really even pause to consider what that word really means and and what the Bible says it means. Um, I think at, at a very fundamental level, the word church, if you just go back to the original Greek, it's ecclesia or ecclesia, which in the Greek just means a group of called away people. And so when the Lord Jesus mentioned that he was going to build his church, he used that word. And everywhere in the New Testament, it uses that word. And so fundamentally, the church is just a group that has been called out of the world, called out of sin, and called to be sanctified, called to be set apart for Christ. But if you look more in depth, uh, there's several other definitions of the church as you read through the New Testament. Uh, Particularly, I would say the second most fundamental one is that the church is the house of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, it's there's this is one of several verses that call the church the house of God, but there Paul makes it very clear that the house of God is it's no longer, you know, in the Old Testament it was the temple, but the the house of God is actually the church. And since the church is composed of the many believers, then he can also say in Ephesians, the end of chapter 2, that the dwelling place of God is actually in each one of us because we are the church. And so the church is not only a group of called out people, it's also the house of God, the dwelling place of God today. Thirdly, the church is referred to as the kingdom of God. Sometimes we think that the kingdom of God is this kind of abstract, all-encompassing, nebulous realm in which God rules the universe. But according to Ephesians 2.19, the kingdom of God is actually made up of us, the believers. It is the church that comprises the kingdom of God. So that's a third definition. One of my favorite ones is the fourth definition, which is that the church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we have these verses. It says that the Father put all things under the feet of Christ and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so I really like that verse. There's another verse in Romans 12, verse 5. It says, We, though we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And so here, again, we see that we, the believers who are the church, are the body of Christ. And so that's another excellent definition of the church. And then finally, I think the definition or the explanation of the church that you guys gave last week from Ephesians 5, that the church is the bride or the wife, the counterpart of Christ in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and 23. And then I really like Revelation 21, verse 9. If you compare that with Ephesians 5, Revelation 21, verse 9 talks about the wife of the Lamb. And so 
related to Ephesians 5, you see the church is the bride or the wife of Christ as well. So that's another excellent definition to consider. When you say the word church, you think of one thing, but perhaps we should ask the Lord to give us maybe a more broadened understanding and appreciation of what the church is to him. Man, Paul, I've got to take notes. I want to reemphasize that last part you said. We want to see what the church means to him, to God. I feel sometimes we view the church according to traditions, or maybe this is how it was taught or told, but we never really dig into the word to see what God's view is. Let me summarize those five points again. Number one, the church is the called out assembly. Number two, the house of the living God. Number three, the kingdom of God. Number four, the body of Christ. And number five, the bride or wife of Christ. With anything in life, the deeper your understanding of a matter, the more you appreciate it. I think seeing this definition really changes my appreciation of the church. It also shows me why God is so focused on building the church, which brings me to our next topic. You know, Paul, last time we had talked about a verse from Matthew 16:18. Peter had just seen the Lord as the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one, and in that moment, the Lord opened his heart and said, I will build my church. It's interesting he used the word build. We know he wasn't talking about building a physical structure. What was he talking about? It is interesting that he used the word build. I'm sure his disciples had to be perplexed when he spoke that word in their midst. They certainly knew about the buildings of the people of Israel. You know, God had been building from the very beginning. Uh, We know about the ark that you've spoken about, that he commissioned Noah to build the ark. And then later he commissioned his people when they came out of Egypt to build the tabernacle. And then finally, once his people were settled in the good land, he instructed Solomon to build the tabernacle. And so there was a history among the people of Israel of God's building work. And then the Lord Jesus shows up and tells them, hey, I'm going to build something. And so it's very significant that he used that word. And I think you pointed it out last week, you know, most translations of Genesis chapter 2, if they don't use the word build, they at least have a footnote indicating that the Hebrew word there when God took the rib and made it into a woman. The word for made, we use made because it makes more sense in the English language, but the actual Hebrew connotation there is that he built that rib into a woman. And so you could say from the very beginning, God was a builder. He built Eve to match Adam, and then throughout the Old Testament, he was commissioning buildings among the people of Israel. And so the Lord shows up, uses this same word, build his church. And if you follow that through the New Testament, you see that that word is used again and again, not in the terms of a structural building like brick and and wood, but in terms of a building within human beings, within his people. In the book of Acts, both Paul and Stephen, while they're preaching the gospel to the Jews, they both tell them that the Most High, the God of their fathers, does not dwell in that which is made with hands. 
basically inferring to them that God doesn't dwell in these buildings of old. He never wanted to. And in fact, Stephen, he quotes Isaiah when he says, As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is a footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? That's a quotation from Isaiah, who was a prophet during the time of the Old Testament when the temple was on the earth. And if the temple was supposed to be the dwelling place of God, why would Isaiah prophesy that God actually has no rest and has no place to, to dwell on the earth? In that same book, in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who inhabits eternity, I will dwell in a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of spirit. And so you see there that actually where God really wants to dwell, where he really wants to have his building, is in man. He wants to have it in the spirit of man. And Paul echoes this in Ephesians chapter 2, where in verse 21 and 22 he says, In whom you all, the whole structure, is being joined together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are not only God's farm, but also his building. So it seems that what God is after is a spiritual building, something not made with human hands, but something made by him in which he can dwell, which according to the Bible is us. And so God is a builder, and he has been building from the get-go with the intention that he would ultimately build in us. Ephesians chapter 3 says that he wants to make his home in our hearts. And so God wants to build into us, and by building himself a home within our heart, he actually is building his church, because the more he builds himself into us, the more we are built up together to be one, to be his church, to be, uh, as you mentioned last week in Ephesians 5, his counterpart. You know, Paul, when I read or hear something like this, I always want to do something. I see in these verses that Noah built the ark and Christ is building his church. And my response is, okay, what do I need to do? But I appreciate you pointing out that actually I need to cooperate with God to let him build in me first. I like how you brought out in Ephesians how we are the dwelling place of God and Christ wants to make his home in our hearts. When someone comes over and we say, make yourself at home, we don't really mean that. Because if your guest says, well, let me paint the wall blue or rearrange the furniture, we would quickly stop them. Sometimes when we are saved and Christ comes into our heart, we put him in the, quote, guest room. Yes, come in, Lord, but don't touch anything. We like the idea of not dying and going to eternal perdition, but Christ wants to make his home in our hearts. He wants to move things around. He wants to expand beyond the guest room. He wants to touch our thoughts change our feelings to match his feeling, get rid of things in us, but there's a lot of resistance in us. One time, I had heard a definition that the church is the Christ in me plus the Christ in you, and I thought that was very exposing. If it's a bunch of Christian people gathered together with our own thoughts, our own concepts, our own feelings, we are no different than any worldly gathering of people. 
However, if I let Christ build in me and you let Christ build in you, then when we get together, it's not just us. It's the Christ in us. This is the church that Christ is building. This is how we cooperate to be today's Noah. We let God build in us, move in us, deal with us, adjust us, so that when we are together, it's no longer me and you, but Christ is being exhibited. Thanks again for joining me today, Paul. I realize today's podcast only presents a certain view concerning Noah's Ark. There is even this matter of baptism in 1 Peter 3, which we didn't get into. Hopefully, we'll have some time to come back to it. I encourage our listeners, me included, to dig into the verse references that Paul gave today, because I think this message is too important to just let slip by. Then we take this to God and pray and seek Him, open to Him and ask Him to make His home in your heart, my heart, today. Feel free to share these podcasts. I hope you guys have a wonderful week, and congrats to our fourth-year medical students that have matched in our graduating. We are so proud of y'all. I remember when some of you guys were M1s, and now you guys are all done. Congrats again. May God make his home more in our hearts this week. Now that the choice is mine.